Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy The Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. We recently released a new episode where we spend an hour discussing horror films, from why we watch them to what we've learned from them. And as we record this, we're about to post our discussion of Sasha Baron Cohen's latest political provocation, Borat's subsequent movie film. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with... Keith Phipps. Genevieve Kosky. It's Scott Tobias. With American movie theaters largely closed, we're still focusing on quarantainment, pairing films you can find on VOD, cable television, or streaming services. This week, we've got something particularly special coming up. Uh, everyone, if you'll just open up those shipping boxes I sent you, you'll find your instruments for the intro we're about to do. Uh, instruments? I, I don't play an instrument. Come on, how, how hard could it be to learn? So I sent you an electronic keyboard, a boudron, and a flute, plus the straps to hang them all from your body so you can trade off between them. Uh, okay, it looks like my box contains an electric guitar and a bass guitar. Yeah, I mean, playing them both at once is going to be a little complicated, but I figure you could like duct tape them together into like one of those double-necked stunt guitar kind of things. It looks like I've got cymbals, a tambourine, a bunch of percussion shakers, and what, what is this, a set of wine glasses? Is this so he can get drunk enough to make it through this tortured explanation about your planning here? No, 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 no. You fill them all with different amounts of water, and then you play them by running your fingers around the rims. It, it produces this really haunting tone. Look, uh, none of us can actually play these instruments. I don't think we have the time to learn during the five minutes we normally allot for these intros. Also, if anyone's playing wine glasses, it should clearly be me. Scott's more of a beer drinker anyway. I, I'm pretty sure I'd need more arms than an octopus to actually perform with all this stuff at once. But the concert footage I watched for this week's show makes it pretty clear that people can learn to play a lot of different instruments while dancing at the same time. <laughs> Have any of you even looked at the choreography I sent over? If you haven't rehearsed the coordinated dance steps, how are we going to perform the big show-stopping routine to celebrate our podcast's special ness? Our special what? Our special ness. That's how David Byrne pronounces it in True Stories. And, you know, he knows what he's talking about. Genevieve, you want to tell us why that would be relevant this week? Anything that gets me out trying to figure out how to play this flute in the next five minutes. So HBO recently released David Byrne's American Utopia, Spike Lee's feature-length document of the stage show Byrne took around the world and eventually to Broadway. It's a concert film first and foremost, but it's also a look at Byrne's most recent music, his biggest hits as a frontman of the band Talking Heads, and a conversation piece about politics and the present in America. We thought this was a good opportunity to look back on Byrne's previous feature film, True Stories, a 1986 independent film that takes place in a small Texas town that's gearing up for a big parade and pageant to celebrate the 150-year anniversary of the state's independence. The film is a loose series of vignettes about the town's residents, but it's also a framework for a number of Talking Heads songs, performed both by Byrne and the band, and by various characters in the film celebrating, as Byrne says, their special nests. So I figured we would celebrate our own special Ness with a big song and dance number. And if that works out and there's a demand for more, we'll release the concept album, and then we'll make our own film, and then we'll take our act on tour. You want me to sing? Not even once in this lifetime, Tasha. Look, I have an idea. 
why don't we save all this for our Patreon supporters? No sense in giving away all this effort for free. Let's just set a date for later to record all this, okay? Oh, that's a great idea. Uh, Keith, are you sure about that? It'll be fine. She's easily distracted. She'll be on to a completely unrelated topic in a minute and will never come back to this one again. Hey! Hey, hey, you guys, I, I think I can see Fort Worth from here. See? Problem solved. Now, excuse me, I got a couple of free guitars out of this deal, and I need a new quarantine project. <laughs> Hi. My name's David Byrne, and I made a movie about a bunch of people in Virgil, Texas. David, relax. They're getting ready for the 150th anniversary of their state. They're calling it a celebration of specialness. Something's happening here, all right. The world is changing. It's created confusion and chaos. Do you run out of Kleenex, paper towels, and toilet paper at the same time? What time is it? No time to look back. I want someone to share my life. Marriage is a natural thing, and I'm a natural man. <laughs> I love the women. Hey, there's more to life than this job. Hello, I'm Louis Fine, and I'm looking for matrimony with a capital M. When David Byrne's directorial debut, True Stories, came out in theaters in 1986, it was accompanied by a book release that included the annotated screenplay and the supermarket tabloid stories that inspired the film. In the introduction, Byrne writes, quote, Empires in retreat get into some pretty weird stuff. Egypt, Rome, England, Japan, Spain, and now the United States. They get this intense pride and nostalgia for what they imagine they are and what they imagine they were, because they can see it slipping away. The pride comes across clearly in True Stories, where the fictional town of Virgil, Texas, is preparing for a celebration of Texas's independence, declared 150 years ago. But what the residents are feeling only looks like nostalgia from the outside. From the inside, it's daily life, and a daily life that's specifically examining the present and looking to the future. As a thunderous preacher inspired by the satirical Church of the Subgenius talks about the strange things going on in the world, or various employees of a local computer company discuss how computers will revolutionize the world, no one seems to be looking back at the past, except in the broadest way, as an excuse to celebrate their specialness. Everybody in Virgil seems pretty happy with the present. A narrator, played by Byrne himself, touts the modernity of prefab warehouses and the clarity of the desert air. A character only identified as the lying woman takes every chance to tell people about her affairs with various celebrities, or how she wrote half of Elvis's songs. Another character, the lazy woman, played by Susie Kurtz, is so rich she never has to get out of bed. Of the town's collection of misfit, tabloid-worthy characters, everyone seems pretty happy, except Louis Fine, played by a young pre-fame John Goodman, who's desperate to marry and start a family, but fears his panda bear physique might be getting in the way. He gets some help, though, from a voodoo practitioner played by gospel and R&B musician Pop Staples, who exudes a warm and welcoming fatherly confidence that everything's going to be all right. True Stories, inspired equally by Errol Morris's Vernon, Florida, Bruce Conner's psychedelic films, Robert Altman's scene portraits like Nashville, and Byrne's love of Federico Fellini's imagery, jumps around these characters with only the loosest sense of narrative connection. Byrne says he got the idea for Virgil's oncoming specialness celebration from director Jonathan Demme, who had directed the 1984 Talking Heads concert film Stop Making Sense, and had subsequently encouraged Byrne to direct a film himself. 
Deming told Byrne he needed, quote, a ticking clock, unquote, to give the loose set of narrative ideas some kind of momentum. So the whole film counts down to the big parade and talent show. But in spite of the ticking clock, it feels unhurried and non-urgent. Just a grab bag of unrelated thoughts, punctuated by Byrne's ironically sincere non-sequiturs about astronauts reading poetry and the way weekends have disappeared. But looking at that quote from the book, and at the loose principle behind Byrne's songwriting, True Stories comes into clearer focus. Byrne has always had an eclectic, energetic mind, and he's always used elaborate metaphors to illustrate emotions in song, usually centered around a sense of wonder, sometimes a mild bafflement with the world as it is, sometimes a joy in what's around him, often just a sense of vivid experiential excitement about his, what his senses or his past or present experiences are telling him about life on Earth. Talking Head's music is immediate and declarative, but if you look under the confident lyrics, there's always a sense of curiosity and engagement. That same sense underlies true stories, as Byrne creates a portrait of an odd but never alarming world where people take things at face value and live in the moment, uncritically accepting all the weird things that come with small-town life and an empire in retreat. Elon Lewis, who's looking for more out of life, is only dissatisfied in a gentle, determined way, and is seeking for more than he has eventually pays off. Quote, it's a quiet time, unquote, Byrne says in the True Stories book. Quote, people don't have the optimism that they had earlier, that whole new vistas would open up and the world could be different. There's a sense now that things have settled. Things are the way they are. My feeling is that epic events happen because of the way people decide to order their daily existence. The decisions are made about really small things. The cumulative effect of all that stuff makes big things happen. Now, there's more optimism in true stories than he lets on. There's a ridiculous mall fashion show setting up a world of ridiculous style to come. And monologist Spalding Gray delivers a dinner table speech illustrated in vegetables about how work habits are going to be very different in the future. But everybody does seem to be focused on small things. And those small things are what's assembling the next 150 years for Virgil, Texas, a place where the colors are crisp, the locals are friendly, and the radio reception is great. Stores here are pretty clean. The air is fresh. There's plenty of parking. Plenty of space to walk around. Hi, how are you? How come you're not at work? Oh, I'm working on a project at home. Uh-huh. I send signals up. What are satellites and things like that? Well, further than that, I hope. Oh. Hey, listen, I gotta get to work before all hell breaks loose. Oh, see you. Well, let me start here. So to kick off, we've got the usual question, what's your history with the film? But I'm also curious what your history is with David Byrne and, and Talking Heads as a band. Keith, The True Stories was re-released in uh, 2018 as a Criterion release, and you actually wrote an essay about it and about Byrne for Slate. You want to kick us off? Uh, sure, I don't remember anything I wrote about it <laughs> at the time. Uh, I do remember when the film coming out, and uh, Talking Heads were... were um, uh, one of the first, probably the, the the first band I was I was really into, and this was the first album of theirs that came out. And as a f uh, after I'd, I'd discovered them, you know, very late into their career, but not so long into my music listening um, uh, life. And I was really excited for this film. Uh, I mean, it was you know I read all about it, and you know David Byrne was on the cover of Time. He was like this, I think believe the second person to the Time let design uh, his own cover. And then I don't think it ever played Dayton, Ohio. <laughs> I mean, did not, you know, this was, there was a lot of press around this film. 
that did not really play all that widely because I, I don't think it, it did all that well. But it's nice to see it pick up a cult following over the years. I, I never saw it until it came out on, on um, uh, VHS um, like a year later or whatever. And I remember liking it, but it's a film that's only grown in my estimation over the years. And in part because I think for a while it was kind of really hard to see. It was like there was it came out on DVD on, a, on a, like a really crappy edition and, and like who wants to watch that, you know? So when I finally did catch up with it again via the Criterion version, it's like, wow, this is a lovely film, really, um, but, but also kind of a disquieting film in some ways. And it looks great. And uh, what an amazing time capsule of a stylized but still recognizable uh, America of 1986. Yeah, I mean, it, ha- it has that kind of like '80s cult vibe, you know. That Repo mm-hmm. Man is a uh, one that kind of springs to mind as a as a film that that is like it a little bit in sensibility, sort of a music driven, almost kind of prefab cult movie. But um, you know, my, I have a weird history myself with Talking Heads, in that I think the first album of theirs I owned was Naked, which is not mm-hmm. exactly like I wouldn't say the highest watermark for that band. Well, it's the end of the story for them too. Yeah, and not on a level with '77 or Speaking in Tongues or anything like that. And then I then I got Sand and the Vaseline, and it just it was a very backwards way of getting into the Talking Heads. And I think it was also pretty late to True Stories. But so I've, you know, it's been kind of a late but great appreciation for Talking Heads and David Byrne and what they're all about. I mean, it's it's an interesting journey. I mean, and this will be something we discuss with this and American Utopia. It's hard to completely pin down where David Byrne is coming from because there seem to be almost contradictory elements in, in his work. He's a slippery person to use his own <laughs> to use his own language. Like he's, um, you know, there's a conceptual distanced way he has of looking at the world but also uh, a tremendous amount of warmth and humanity as well and those things kind of coexist in the music and they're present here i mean what's kind of remarkable about true stories is how much of his sensibility comes through on screen i mean it is so you know david Byrne had never made a movie before never directed a movie before and this is somehow unmistakably you know a david bird film even if he weren't the cowboy narrator of the thing it just feels so much like a look into his weird little head but you know i still very much like and i think i think that mix uh, as tasha was saying in the introduction between like vernon florida and and nashville i think those are two really good points of comparison for like where this film is coming from sensibility wise yeah, I definitely got the Nashville feel. And, um, you know, Scott, you were saying you, you know, I think both of you kind of said you came to Talking Heads late in their career. Uh, I guarantee you I came <laughs> to Talking Heads uh, uh, later. Uh, they were not a part of my formative music experience. And for a long time, I think my only context for them was Stop Making Sense, which is a film I love. It's a great film. We talked about it on this podcast, which is why we're not pairing it with American Utopia. But that was pretty much my context context for Burn and Talking Heads for most of my life. And I didn't realize until watching True Stories that I had another reference point, which was David Byrne Simpson's appearance, uh, where he's driving the red convertible that we see here in True Stories, which I did not realize was a reference until seeing this. So, you know, another uh, link forms in my <laughs> brain's like reference chain. But the combination of watching American Utopia and this, like, I feel like I'm just like on a like a burn high these days, like both my fiance and I have just been listening to a lot of talking heads. And it's just like his whole vibe feels so 
right for this moment, which I'm sure we will get into more uh, in the second part of this pairing. As for true stories, I'm ashamed to admit, like I, I knew almost nothing about it. Like I said, the the red convertible thing was a complete uh, surprise to me upon seeing it. But you know, it it was a fun experience watching this with two other people who who had never seen it and who are also kind of like I said on on a, on a burn high these days. And it's a film that I think under different circumstances I might not gel with uh, as much, just because it doesn't have much of a narrative and. Most of the characters don't have a lot of deep characterization, although they are certainly memorable. And as I've said very frequently on this podcast, I tend to engage with narrative and character first and foremost. And this is much more of a, I guess, style driven or even just sort of like idea driven. It's like amusing of a film, sort of. Vignette um, driven, I think. Yes, vignettes, of course. But yeah, it, it hit me really well this time. I can definitely see why it's sort of a lesser discussed film and you know but i can also see why it has a cult appreciation and i'm i'm glad it's made its way onto my radar i think i i discovered this film in college about the same time that i discovered hal hartley and i just have such a strong association between true stories and the hal hartley films of that era and I mean, you can you can sort of see why if you look at them all collectively, they're a bunch of uh, skinny, like big eyed, extremely sincere men uh, wandering around the the heartland, you know, wandering around the American Southwest, uh, spouting aphorisms that that kind of amount to non sequiturs, but uh, just have this like particularly intense form of like laid back indie film machismo. And I like revisiting this film outside of that kind of that milieu that that mindset that I was in where I was basically just discovering the mildly weirder side of cinema it didn't quite live up to my memories of it uh, quite as well as I had hoped it it felt more disorganized and and wandering and less deep than it seemed at the time you know that sort of college mindset where everything that you've never <laughs> encountered before that feels like uh, an evocative means of somebody communicating their emotion just feels like really whoa man i have i lack my my whoa man mentality uh, these days and so watching it again wasn't quite the homecoming i might have expected but it's been a long time since i've listened to talking heads music and man some of this stuff just like brought back the emotional impact of those days so strongly and other songs that i was less familiar with the hey now song that the kids sing as they're like wandering the parking lot playing impromptu instruments. Oh, man, that is just, it's an unbeatable kind of participatory rhythmic experience. And there's just something so like defiant and in the moment about these kids performing that song. It, it just, it really hit me pretty hard. And there are just moments like that throughout the film that just seems so sincere and joyous particularly about music in a way a lot of the kind of like more removed and ironic things don't it's such a strange beast of a film i think if it was two hours long i probably wouldn't mm. really want to <laughs> visit it again after this but at 90 minutes it is just kind of like a bite-sized cracker uh covered with different spices and you kind of shifting from flavor to flavor really rapidly yeah, I did have that feeling toward the end of like, okay, I'm glad I know this is wrapping up soon. <laughs> because like, as it, we're leading up to the parade and talent show, like it feels like the energy flags a little bit. But also to your point about the music, I think 
the highlight of the movie for me comes pretty early, which is the Wild Wildlife uh, lip sync, mm-hmm. um, which is just so much fun and which also illustrates sort of a style that comes up a lot and or a few times in this one, which is just sort of like that early music video, you know, that uh, mid 80s music video. So, I mean, Wild Wildlife, like that was basically released as a music video, right? Am it's I, a slightly I, different edit, but yeah, it's exactly the same concept and a lot of the same footage. Yeah, and, and, yeah, and it has like the sort of uh, references to Prince and, and Billy Idol in it. And then there's the television one, too, that we uh, see Susie Kurtz watching, which is, you know, basically just a music video and a type of music video, a style of music video that we don't really see anymore. And for me, anyway, like that was sort of the big nostalgia hit of this movie that I that I hadn't seen before, but it definitely tapped into some memories of that type of uh, of music video that we don't see anymore. Well, that, that song is so great, too. <laughs> I mean, oh, yeah. just the song, Wild, Wildlife is just a wonderful, catchy song. But also just like the idea of a group lip sync night, you know, like not karaoke, like karaoke has a lot of pressure, but I've always thought like, why don't more places do like lip sync nights where it's just performing, you don't have to worry about how good you sound, you know? So just like, the, the very concept of a lip sync, a group lip sync performance feels just like very inclusive in a way that I've increasingly associated with Byrne himself. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's got the energy of a Japanese air guitar contest, uh-huh. just that kind of go for broke physicality about it all. And the fact that you're seeing a wide range of ethnicities, a wide mm-hmm. range of body types, a wide range of ages, just like this parade of everybody from like a really little kid to a, like a couple of older men, people who take such a different approaches, like from sincere to absolutely goofy about it. It really just becomes a kind of like, this is great. And what am I going to get next? You know, it, it moves so quickly and gives you so many different things. What One, I think, important aspect of that sequence, too, is is that it brings this kind of community together. I mean, I think that's a challenge that True Stories sets for itself, which is that all these disparate weirdos who sort of comprise this town, you have to kind of give that sense every once in a while that, that they're all in the same shared space. And, you know, that's something that Nashville obviously does extraordinarily well at the end. And this does it then, and then, and then it follows through with the parade and all that other stuff. But I think you kind of need that. You know, with the film overall, I mean, I think it is rough around the edges. I mean, this is the first film. There's a quality of it to where it's a little underbaked. You know, certain ideas are not as well-developed as you'd want. I mean, and yet I think when you get some distance from it, or maybe even even while you're watching it, I think just certain ideas resonate, you know? So you just kind of like, it's like a grab bag of moments and vignettes, ideas, concepts, song bits, you know, images that do add up to something, even if in the moment or in the the course of the film, it doesn't cohere like Nashville. I mean, he was not Robert Altman at that point. He was making his first movie. And uh, so it is a little rough around the edges still. Do you know that uh, trivia fact uh, that uh, he tried to get John Tewksbury to write it? Oh, really? Nashville screenwriter John Tewksbury? Yeah, I didn't. I I think she gave him some general advice, but uh, passed on the project. Well, speaking of the writing credit for this, the the writing credit actually goes to Stephen Toblowski and Beth Henley, who uh, Beth was dating Stephen at the time. They were like working together on writing and other projects. They were both actors. And he has an episode about true stories in his podcast, The Toblowski Files, which we recently recommended to Scott. 
Uh, the episode where he talks about true stories, though, he says that Byrne basically came to the two of them and that he was they were recommended to him in part uh, by Demi and in part by uh, admiration for Beth's work specifically. So they were hired on to write the script and they wrote a script and turned it in. And then Byrne just disappeared for 18 months. Just no word, no uh, information. They were expecting to do rewrites uh, to possibly be involved with it in some way. And he just went completely in communicado. And then he happened to run into Byrne on the street and Byrne said that the film was done and that they'd kept some of Tobolowsky and Henley's uh, content and that they would keep the writing credit. So not to worry about that. <laughs> and then when Tobolowsky watched the film, he said, everything that actually came from our version was something he had directly told us to do in his outline. Like, mm. basically, we were just seeing his outline. So I'm kind of wondering if this entire film was scripted by Byrne himself, possibly. I don't know whether any of it could have been improv because it all comes across as so precise. But I'm sort of wondering if you see kind of the same mentality or aesthetic or voice in this that you see in the Talking Heads songs. I would say yes. I think what ultimately happened with that screenplay is that I think the bones of it, I think they came up with the whole sesquicentennial conceit was Tobolowsky and Henley's idea, right? Mm-hmm. The, I, the whole study of Texas, I believe, was, was uh, they steered it in that direction yeah, too. I think it was probably, that was kind of the bones of the thing and the structure of the thing, but everything else was apparently discarded. And I think, I think it, there was some detail about how he wanted them first in the screenwriting credit, so it didn't seem like a vanity project, even though he'd pretty much written the entire screenplay himself. The film is so much a reflection of his sensibility, his way of looking at the world. I, I don't think it's it's almost inevitable. You know, I don't know if, I mean, maybe Joan Tewksbury could have come up with something that he would have done, but it seems like, you know, this is David Byrne expressing his point of view on, on the world, and, and it's all entirely of his creation. I mean, I think that's just the way it turned out. But at the same time, it doesn't really feel like a grand statement, you know? I mean, there's certainly ideas that are clearly important to him, but, you know, there's just so much in this movie that is, I don't want to say tossed off, but, you know, just just very kind of casual in the way that it's that it's broached, you know, that, like there's not a, a weightiness to this film. Even if he was the solely credited person on it, I think I still would have trouble thinking of it as a vanity project just because there's just a lack of self-seriousness to it that I'm, you know, learning is just also part of Burns' persona and the way that he writes and the way he does everything, but also this extreme amount of heart to it. I think it's also sometimes it's kind of the cinematic equivalent of the approach they took to the album Fear of Music, which has a lot of one word titles like cities, air, heaven, drugs. So it's like this is, you know, this, the, here are my thoughts on malls. Here are my thoughts on uh, contemporary religion. You know, it's just sort of a little vignettes dedicated to, I don't know, it's kind of like vague musings, like sort of like mm-hmm. more more like suggestive ideas and more suggestions than conclusions, I think, is, is kind of his, his approach just in general, but it's really on evidence here as well. I loved the mall bit. Like, yeah. <laughs> like in, the, in the now, fashion just, show? I, I mean, I loved Incredible. the fashion show, but but even just like the the sort of lead up to it and the you know the line that now feels so cliche of you know the the mall has replaced the town square, you know the American small town square, but you know kind of going back to the idea of nostalgia, like 
you know, it's weird to think like how briefly malls were, were mm-hmm. just, you know, central to the culture. Um, we kind of uh, notoriously did a, a theme week back at the AV Club called Mall Week <laughs> that, that, that literally came out of a joke. And I don't think we put this on. I don't think we, we talked about true stories in, no, in it at have. all. But um, yeah, I mean, like the heyday of the mall only lasted like maybe 20 years at, at best, you know? So, yeah, it was weird because I was, I was born into it. Well, no, I was just born in the mall culture, you know, it's like, you know, my family went to the mall every weekend and I, I just assumed it would be there forever. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it's, it's a strange thing to see die in my lifetime, but then a lot of things uh, yeah. I, I expected to last forever have, have faded away. Mm-hmm. So Scott, your, your point about the screenplay credit going to Tobolowsky and Henley because Byrne didn't want a vanity project is interesting to me because I read an interview with him from 2018 where he was talking about this film and he legitimately couldn't remember if he had the directorial credit on this movie. He was talking about the choreographer that he'd worked with and how he could not remember whether she had gotten the directorial credit and he'd gotten the choreography credit or the other way around. And he, he didn't seem to be joking about that. But it does kind of highlight something that uh, I, I was thinking about in conjunction with one of the things you said in our Patreon episode about horror movies. You talked a bunch about how for a horror movie to stand out for you, for it to be interesting, it has to have like a strong directorial stamp, mm-hmm. like a, a point of view. Do you see this as having a strong directorial point of view? Oh, absolutely. I mean, as I was saying earlier on the podcast, I mean, this is a very weird instance in that it is David Byrne's first film as a director, but also unmistakably... <laughs> A David Byrne film, you know, you can't really say that about uh, you know. Usually, you need multiple films to kind of be able to identify a strong style, but this certainly feels like David Byrne kind of head to toe. Um, and obviously, the, he gets a lot of really important contributions. He's got Ed Lockman as the cinematographer, who's exceptional, and he's got you know, I think John Goodman is an extremely important. I was wondering when we were going to get to Goodman presence in the in the movie because I think I think there you get your one narrative through line if there is one mm-hmm. in the whole, in the movie. I mean, his search for love is something that it has some kind of arc to it, which is not really the case with any of the other characters. And I also think the spirit of the film, the optimism of it, the the, the you know the seeking quality, the 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 desire for love and for happiness that is embodied by that character uh, and is extremely important to the film overall. I have such affection for John Goodman and and everything and I but I think this is the youngest I've seen him uh in in anything the earliest in his career that I I've, I've seen him and you know one quality he has that I don't want to say it doesn't get discussed enough because people do talk about, but it's it's maybe not appreciated. Is he's su- he has such great physicality? Like I mean, he's a great dancer. That's brought up in the movie and uh, displayed in in the movie too. But the probably the biggest, not even probably, definitely the biggest laugh for me. Uh, and the people I was watching with in, in the entire movie was early on when we see him on a date, I guess, with a woman teaching him yoga poses. And he tries to get into lotus position and just like folds over, crumples forward. I don't know if it was scripted or improved or it feels like something that Goodman would just do, you know, because he does have that sort of almost clownish energy in the way he moves. Um, and he's surprisingly graceful in his clumsiness. So that was just a, 
a beautiful little little moment of goodness. That is great. And he, I like how he describes himself as a panda. <laughs> panda bear. It's, a, it's a sweet, consistent panda bear shape. shape. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's sweet, and you feel so excited for him at the end. You know, it reminds me too, considering that he he ends up with. Swoozy Kurtz, who, who basically lies in bed the whole time because she's too, <laughs> she's so rich, she doesn't the have lazy to, woman. to to leave. But I mean, you can see how any other filmmaker would cast judgment on such a character, and there's just none of that from Bert. He just can't. He seems incapable of like rendering a negative judgment of any of these characters. Like he has, he can kind of, he has a certain amount of of affection for all of them, even though some of them are you know ridiculous the lying woman for example is about not a particularly good person but uh you know i think he uh, he just doesn't have the attitude of of being judgmental that's not really his way of looking at things this married couple hasn't spoken to each other in 30 years isn't that interesting <laughs> there's a surprising amount of tolerance in this town in general i mean the the moment where the lying woman stands up in church and interrupts the preacher or pastor or whatever he is uh to talk about her affair with jfk and he just like listens to her and uh, then accepts what she said and, and moves on just feels like nothing that's ever happened in a small town to me she's definitely a local character and she seems to be a local character everybody knows and is familiar with and nobody uh contradicts her in any way but nobody encourages her either there is kind of a, a truth to that i suppose to your uh small town kooks who have been deemed harmless and you don't you don't engage with them more than you have to but there's also no point in fighting them i i could see that being very true but do you i i'm mostly just curious i guess it's so common for movies about either the south or the midwest to be lambasted for uh looking down on quirky characters for treating them like dismissively or contemptuously you you don't see any judgment in these uh these wacky ass supermarket tabloid characters i mean there there's one part in particular that i wanted to get your guys read on because it's so subtle that i could believe it is accidental or just me reading in more into a shot than is there but in the mall scene where burn meets up with lewis uh, goodman's character and you know he kind of shows him his his outfit you know and they're, they're strolling through the mall and Lewis is talking about, you know, wanting to meet a woman and, you know, his his whole thing. And Byrne kind of like gestures at a bench full of women and he's like, how, how about any of them? And the bench, it's like a two-sided bench and on one side there's a group of elderly white women and on the other side there's a group of young black women. And so the narrator like gestures like, what about them? And he's just like kind of in that direction. Goodman goes, oh, they're all too old for me. I read that as him like not even considering the young black women as an option, but it's never commented on. It's so brief, the shot. So like I said, I could believe it as just being unintentional, but it also feels like maybe there's a little bit of something happening there as far as Lewis's character goes. I noticed that too. And I, and I, were they like girls though? Weren't those teenagers? Weren't they a little young for him to, uh, to be considering? Maybe, uh, it's a, it's I don't know, but it's shot. still, it's, it's significant that he doesn't say, you know, the, they're too young for me. Yeah, sure, you know, well, it's, it's significant that I, I, I got the same thing out of that shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just sort of a sense of him not even seeing uh, the, the black girls, not just as possibilities, but possibly seeing them at all. And it did seem deliberate. Uh, but in a movie that seems pretty egalitarian about people mm-hmm. of whatever race, which again, <laughs> certainly not my experience with uh, small text 
parks and towns. It does just go by very quickly and without seeming like too snide or, or too thematic, like too much of a, right. a big aspect of the story. Well, as endearing as Lewis is as a character, I mean, there's something about those lines in People Like Us that we don't want freedom, we don't want justice, we just want someone to love that always get hung up on. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, there's certainly people like that in the world. and, and But I think there's there's a ceiling as to how much you should be celebrating right. that particular <laughs> uh, <laughs> facet of, of, of their personalities. Well, I would love to see. I, I would not have a copy of the True Stories book. The quotes that I got, I found from various essays about the book online. I would love to see the tabloid stories that this was based on. One can assume that some of the, like the lying woman and her crazy stories are involved. The woman that never gets out of bed because she's too rich is involved. But I would love to know if Lewis is uh, like getting getting married to a shut-in is in any way reflected in any of those tabloid stories or like just basically his search for love and his willingness to take whatever comes along. Oh man, I used to have that book and it's going for a lot on eBay now. Oh, <laughs> yeah, unsurprising. I don't know that the movie considers his marriage to the lazy woman a good thing. I mean, the sequence where she's channel surfing and just like kind of squawking Hmm. first reactions at, at everything she sees. I don't know. She comes across as like shallow and impatient and excitable and full of herself and just one of the more unpleasant characters in the film, as far as I'm concerned. And the fact that she sees him on the TV and just immediately reaches for the phone and summons him to her side and they get married. If he's willing to make a go of it, if she's what he wants out of life, then good for him and good for both of them. But I just, we don't really see enough of them together to feel like this does not feel like a rom-com where we spend the movie setting up the, why can't these two people be together? And then in the end they get together. It's, it's more like, Oh, I guess, is there someone for everyone? There's the kind of terrible woman and the very desperate man. Sure. Hmm. I think uh, having watched American Utopia before this, that movie, I think, gives a little bit of context with which to read that relationship, where Byrne in American Utopia kind of tells a story about getting his first color television and wondering, like, is this a way that humans can find connection? Like, you know, and I think... You know, I I can't speak with any authority on this, but I get the sense that probably Byrne was someone who was very kind of fascinated with television, certainly at this point. And I think we see that come through uh, in in Susie Kurtz's character and how she is her only engagement with the world is through her television. And that extends all the way to human connection and, and love, quote unquote, love. So this film, it, d- depending on where you look it up, it's listed as a comedy, as a satire, as a study of Americana, uh, as a, a portrait of the world, as an experimental film. It's it's a lot of different things, and I don't know that any of those labels fit. Is there a way to describe this movie to other people that makes sense? And should it be considered a comedy? Is it funny in any sort of way that you would make you recommend it to other people as a comedy? I guess if I were to say it were one thing or the other, it'd probably be a comedy more than any of the other things. Other than you could say a comedy that is also kind of a American mosaic of sorts. I mean that. I mean it's a funnier film than than Nashville, but, but it's kind of mm-hmm. a similar cloth. It's very similar to Vernon, Florida, which is probably you know Errol Morris's funniest film outside of Tabloid, I guess. And um, you know it's it's full of you know eccentric 
people and unexpected events and it has kind of a spirit that is strange and yet very positive i mean i think it's a it's a you know it's a feel-good film in its way yeah i think of it like more of a comedy in the classical sense like right down to there being a wedding at the end you know uh, and there being music and just kind of an overall lack of tragedy and and death well there's maybe some allusions to it, but, uh, you know, sort of it's not engaging uh, for any length of time with with anything too sad. But in terms of how we think of comedic films, you know, it's maybe a little harder sell in that regard, like other than John Goodman failing to get into Lotus position, I'm I'm hard pressed to think of any like belly laughs in the film. They're all more sort of like wry chuckles, <laughs> you know, but you know, uh, there's a lot of wry chuckles. And that can certainly you can certainly get some mileage out of that. So speaking of the film's uh, lack of engagement with death, apparently there was a whole sideline where the woman referred to as the cute woman, the woman who turns down uh, John Goodman's suit because she can't have anything so sad in right. her life as his music. She dies in the film because she basically dies of acute overload at the parade <laughs> when she sees all the babies. Oh, the babies. Yeah, that was weird. It, it was. And the reason it feels weird is because there's no closure to it because <laughs> they apparently actually shot it there's uh, I, I found this whole description of they went out and found uh, the pinkest casket they could find and like <laughs> and layered it with feathers and it made just just this adorable like overblown casket that fits her aesthetic and in the end he decided it was all a little too grim for what he was trying to do yeah this scene's on the blu-ray along oh, yeah. with a uh, deleted scene from I believe it's from the talent show where, where it's an elaborate description of a boy scout describing how not to get kidnapped uh, that was deemed a little too too grim <laughs> to be in the film. Uh, yeah, there's some real there's some real treasures on that Blu-ray, including a brief interview with Byrne, flanked by his parents, who were very smiling and very Scottish and seemingly much taller than him. Although it may just be that it was framed and talking about how we just didn't really understand what David was doing. We we read this and we didn't understand it. But you know, I could absolutely imagine Byrne just like positioning it so he looks like a small uh-huh. little boy next to his parents just for the the visual of it. (laughs) Well, we've talked a bit about uh, John Goodman, and we've talked about sort of some of the characters without addressing the actors. Is there any performance here besides Goodman's that particularly stands out for you? Is there any like character or bit of business that we haven't talked about that really stands out for you? I think the Pop Staples song and that whole sequence and the way it's sort of cross-cut with with Lewis, but more it's just the... The performance, and it does feel like a moment where the film does take on a little bit more weight, not necessarily thematically, but just stylistically. You know, it feels a little more substantial in that moment through both the performance and the style, I think. That's the one that stands out for me, too. And I I think in part, it's just because it contrasts so sharply with kind of the mega church feel of mm, the right. Church of the Subgenius segment. You get the... Like, like pretty traditional church preaching segment, I guess you would call it. Uh, it's again a, a musical number, and it's built around the Church of the Subgenius. So the title of the song is apparently a deep cut reference to some of the mythology of the Church of the Subgenius, but. All of that just has this kind of like wry feeling that doesn't land very well for me. It's got like an insincere sort of satirical 
making fun of a belief system kind of thing to it. And then you get the contrast of this like Santa Rhea sequence that's like utterly sincere. And that's specifically where the the church preaching se- sequence is about doubting the world and, and finding like vileness and meaninglessness and uh, confusion and, and chaos in it. And then the voodoo sequence is about like putting good feelings out into the world, about supporting mm-hmm. other people in the community, about drawing in hope and, and luck and good vibes and positivity. And it ends up being a, a pretty sharp contrast between two different forms of belief and like what they're putting into the world for the believers, for uh, separately the practitioners. I have a little bit of trivia about uh, The Preacher, too. I don't know if you looked this up or not, but uh, was that, this is actually one of his earlier film credits. Uh, he acted really steadily from 85 until his death in 2012. He was on uh, – John Engel is his name. He's in things like Batman and Robin. He's on an episode of The Office. Uh, his previous job was as the acting teacher at Beverly Hills High School. Here mm-hmm. are some of his alums. Uh, Julie Kavner, Jonathan Silverman, David Schwimmer, Stephanie Powers, Susie Kurtz, uh, mm-hmm. Barbara Hershey, uh, Richard Dreyfus, Albert Brooks, and uh, Mr. Nicholas Cage. So, <laughs> yeah, it, 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 interesting, an interesting character, and you know, it's just based on uh, probably a pretty good acting teacher based on uh, based on that list of former students. That's good. Wow. That's a good one, Keith. Speaking of people with kind of an, an interesting history in and out of cinema, what do you make of Spalding Gray here? I always liked him yeah. as an actor when he turned up in character parts like this. So this is kind of like halfway between playing a role and, and doing a Spalding Gray <laughs> performance in a way. But, you know, he I think he fits right into this world where it's a little arch, but also uh, a sincere attempt to, to create a character from this material. That sequence where he's explaining the future to people is so strange in so many ways. Just the, the grabbing vegetables and building a little road on the table and engaging his kids uh, in the, the whole yeah. monologue. And I love the kids the- in that. Like I know, I know it's about Spalding Gray, but I really enjoy the way the kids like supplement his performance. Well, very this, cheerily. Their supportiveness yeah. is really interesting, particularly given the whole business about him and his wife not speaking to each <laughs> <Right>. other. Like... <laughs> That tension at the dinner table could be the subject of like so many dramas. It could be such an ugly scene. And instead, both of them going back and forth between the teenage daughter, like, you know, ask your mother to pass the mustard, ask your father how things went at work today. But the the fact that the teenage girl is like, so eager to perform her like Galaxy Quest style role <laughs> of passing things back and forth just really defangs the whole thing and makes it kind of cute. Yeah. So uh, to wrap up, I mean, this is, it's not a concert film at all. And it's not anything like a traditional musical, like even a jukebox musical. But it is a story like built in many ways around these song performances, both kind of diegetic and kind of fantastical in the soundtrack and in the performances. Uh, The way the music is used in this film is just all over the place. What do you make of it? Like, what do you make of Talking Heads kind of presence as a, an authorial voice in this movie i think the the album the true stories album that the talking heads you know perform which i think people far more people know than, than the film you know when you see the film you, you realize that album is kind of reverse engineered from songs that were created for, for specific situations and i know this is a period in the band's history when it, well i don't think there's a period in the band's history when there wasn't a lot of tension but the tension between Burn wanting to pursue other projects and the band wanting to go out on tour and, and play uh, rock and roll music was very high at this point. So, and, you know, with, with all uh, respect for Burn's accomplishments, if you were another member of Talking Heads, you can kind of see where that might be an issue at this point. Yeah. The problem with David Byrne is, again, it's a contradictory thing because I think there's a part of him that is so 
into um, the collective and into what a lot of different voices can kind of add to his to his own. But then there's a part of him that is iconic, totally iconoclastic and original and dismissive, I guess, of, of collaborations. So those, I mean, I think there's both of those sides. I'm sure it was difficult for his bandmates uh, they've said it <laughs> they've said it as much like there's a new book out right by one of the Chris Chris friends is probably that's uh pr- pretty um from what i understand pretty candid about that stuff but music is that important unifying element of the movie though it is you know and, and as i was talking about before i mean that's what makes uh the wild wild life scene work i mean it is it is a time where when all of these different weird voices and vignettes can kind of come together and give you a sense of cohesion and of everyone kind of speaking in the same voice and as a town coming together and singing. So um, it's critical to the success of the movie. Well, we've talked a lot about specific performances and uses of songs in this movie, but we've probably left out your favorite one. So uh, feel free to send us feedback about uh, what we missed and how important it is to the movie. In the meantime, we've got a lot more to say about true stories, but we'll save it for the, uh, the matchup in our next episode when we compare it to American Utopia. In the meantime, we're going to move on to recent feedback. for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. We've recently gotten a few letters about our pairing of Yorgos Lanthimos' Dogtooth and Miranda July's Kajillionaire. Scott, you want to read this first one? Uh, sure. We spent some time discussing the ending of Dogtooth on the show and wondering whether it was meant to be ambiguous. Justin writes, When I watched Dogtooth years after it was released, I believe I had already seen one or two subsequent Lanthimos films, which primed me to watch and interpret the film more allegorically, a reading you discussed in the episode. Thus, I saw the ending as a perfect culmination to the allegory the story built about the effects parents have on their children. While you all discuss the question of whether the daughter passes out, dies, will escape the trunk, etc., a reading which I hadn't considered, but was a duh, why didn't I think of that moment for me when I listened to your discussion? I didn't even consider whether or not she escapes the trunk. Like Genevieve, I didn't quite warm to these characters as real people and viewed them with some allegorical remove. What floored me was the juxtaposition of the thrill that she escaped the prison of her family with the fact that the final shot wasn't her opening up her arms to the sky like Andy Defresne in the Shawshank Redemption, but rather her still being trapped in her father's prison, despite escaping to the outside world. It drove home for me something I conveniently ignored in the excitement over her escape, that, as Keith said, she is completely ill or unequipped to exist in the outside world, and the ignorance and distorted worldview her parents imparted has left her still literally and figuratively trapped. So the ending, in my reading, was less opposing of the question of whether she literally escapes the trunk and more about whether she may ever figuratively escape that trunk and all that that trunk represents. The crushing oppression of her family's influences on who she is and how she understands the world, which still remain despite her attempt to escape it. Further, the ending made me do what the best art should, ask questions about my own life, as I considered the legacy and influence my parents had on me. Fortunately, my parents way exceeded the low bar that Dogtooth's parents set. We are happy to hear that. Uh, and how I struggle with the quote-unquote escaping the trunk of some things I wish I could leave behind. As a new parent around the time of my first viewing, I then thought about the weight of the responsibility I have for my son's ability to navigate the world on his own 
and I was completely floored in the best way. Yeah, I I think fundamentally this is a film about the impact that parents have on kids. And it is to some degree, it has to be intended to make people think about what they pass along and how much they shape their kids, how their own biases, how their own ingrained beliefs, how their own agendas uh, shape kids who have no choice in the matter. I think if people read this movie and come away with a feeling of like responsibility as caretakers for their children, like that's a, a very good way to handle this film. Yeah, I really like this letter a lot. Um, yeah. And I think it I think that the idea of the trunk as <laughs> as metaphor here as well elucidated by Justin uh, of just of what you know, and of course, of course, we can understand that these parents, in raising their children as they have, have not equipped them at all to be able to survive outside of the home. I mean, in fact, they, they've made the outside of the home seem absolutely foreign and reinforced that by never letting them, them leave. And so the idea of this character being able to get out of the trunk and be able to find her way in the world is highly, highly unlikely and, you know, quite sad really thought about this aspect of it, but it really is a short-sighted approach to parenting. I mean, in theory, the whole point of parenting is to prepare your kids for the world, to prepare them to go on to be individuals and adults, uh, to prepare them to eventually leave the nest and stand on their own. But part of what these parents are doing are creating kids that have no method of doing that whatsoever. And the presumption is that they've just never really thought about it, that they don't expect them to. Maybe the parents have just never thought about their own mortality, or given how weird some of their belief systems seem to be, you know, maybe they're planning on poisoning the kids when the parents get too old to uh, to go on themselves. There's definitely a lack of, like, visible preparation for a future where the parents are not around to control these kids. And whether that's uh, ego or like whether it's intended is, I think, unclear, but it is something that we have to reckon with. Well, we actually have another dog tooth letter that touches on the theme of parental control, but uses it as a springboard for thoughts on a different movie. Keith? Yes. Christopher writes, I want to respond to your joking reference to the human centipede as a kind of lowbrow B-movie exploitation version of dog tooth. While I certainly appreciate the joke here, there is a film that does seem to represent this kind of thing for me, and that is George Romero's 1977 film, Martin. Okay, I like this letter already. Um, <laughs> while you do not have the extreme cutting off of a young person from civilization like you have in Dogtooth, the film is about a young person who is radically shaped by his familiar surroundings. In the film, the central character, Martin, has been told that his family is cursed and that they produce a vampire every so many generations and that, therefore, Martin is a vampire. He has had this so ingrained in his mind that he actually does go out and kill people, although not as vampires traditionally do, and drinks their blood after they are dead. I have read many critics and academics describe this film as being a twist on the vampire legend that turns the vampire into a psychopath. But for me, the real issue going on in the film is similar to that in Dogtooth. That is, his family, at least the older generation, has so controlled the way that Martin sees himself that he cannot help but act out in the way that his family has predetermined that he should. Also, like Dogtooth, the introduction of an outside figure who actually cares for Martin as a human being and wants to make a real connection with him is what brings the whole system down. So ultimately, Martin is, for me, a film that is about the way that your family constructs and controls your identity in ways that are difficult, if not impossible, to entirely escape from. If we apply the Martin theme to Dogtooth, 
then the ending of Dogtooth is not what we may want it to be. Uh, I, I, anytime you talk yeah. about Martin, is, <laughs> is so good excited. by me. It's, it's a very, it's a very good uh-huh. film. Uh, and I didn't not make that connection either. I also I think Martin layers on another element of um, uh, immigration and assimilation, where Martin is sort of being drawn, you know, kind of forced to live the old ways of his uh, old ways of his family when when uh, he doesn't necessarily want to, or or you know has a you know maybe has a chance to escape, and that's and is torn uh, by those possibilities. For those of you who don't know, it's, it's a great film that uh, Romero made in the seventies, uh, just before Dawn of the Dead, and uh, and it's it's sort of a, a, a Terrific portrait of a of a downtrodden seventies Pittsburgh. Uh, it's a lot of really uh, grungy, you know, location photography in this. It also but has it's, it's the really, perfect it's, ending to a movie ever. The perfect ending <laughs> too. Is like yes. so good. Uh, but which no, we can't spoil, it's, but, uh, it's but, yes, absolutely it's, brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, he's such a good editor too. Like the way that Martin kind of goes, you know, he's the violence in this film is extremely ugly. But it also cuts away to his like sort of or his romanticized conception of, of what being a vampire is, you know, uh, which is drawn from like watching old horror films. It's shot in black and white, if I remember correctly. It's been a couple of years for me uh, for this film. I believe so. If not, it certainly has a different stylistic approach okay. to it. But but yeah, that's really worth seeking out that one. If, if you can find it, it's I was really going to say, how available is it? I know. Not, that... not available at all because there's some sort of weird <laughs> rights issues tied up between that and Dawn of the Dead where they are available or have been available in physical media. You cannot uh, stream them anywhere. Um, but uh, hit you up know. your local library. Yes, <laughs> hit up your local library. Potentially, or, or come to my own. house after quarantine's <laughs> over. I, I can show it to you there. Your local very rare and uh, far between video store. I'm I'm pretty yeah. sure that I rented a physical copy of Martin. That that's how I saw it. But it's been long enough that I didn't remember the family kind of formative experience. I remembered this as something that he came to maybe a little more on his own, which kind of makes like how the film wraps up less resonant in a way. I, I think the description here of the intro of the family kind of being responsible for what he becomes would give the whole film a, a much stronger bookend and a much stronger resonance with Dogtooth that I find very interesting. And clearly, I need to revisit Martin. As long as we're on the subject of Martin too, there's a, there's a very good low-budget horror movie be made a couple years ago called the Transfiguration, which is sort of the similar sort of scenario, but a, um, a black New York teenager. Yeah, and I think Martin actually is actually explicitly referenced in the film as well. It but, is. Uh, I just saw that for the first time pretty recently. Good, it's right? on uh, Canopy. I, I was actually going to bring it up for next picture show. Oh. Maybe I uh, maybe I'll talk about it in more detail then. Well, I, I wonder if there's well, a little rewind <laughs> the tape. Lord. Rewind the tape, edit it up. I wonder if there's any other films like this. Maybe, Tasha, is there something you can maybe recommend later? Oh, keep your uh, your evaporation of the past is uh, like it's so unlike the things that happen to Dogtooth, where people's yeah. uh, pasts will cling to them and haunt them forever. So uh, we're going to end feedback there. We always appreciate it when listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations with us. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll go back to the David Byrne well by looking at his new concert doc and political statement, David Byrne's American Utopia. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. 
Even better still, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. Follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, I have something to say about the difference between American and European cities, but I've forgotten what it is. I have it written down somewhere. Somewhere.